Welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a look at the week that was in rock and roll history, and we do it in a lighthearted fashion. I'm Tony Stewart, and I'm here with Aaron Badgley, and Aaron, guess what? We've made it to episode 40. Can you believe it? And to celebrate number 40, we are here together in the same room in beautiful downtown Almont in your studio. Yeah, it's fantastic. We've had a great weekend together, and... uh, Andrea and Cynthia are having a great time as well. You guys have been the best hosts of all time. Well, we appreciate that. We're so glad you could make it up. So we're doing something different to celebrate our 40th episode. When we were researching this show, we were saying, holy cow, there is a lot of stuff that happened on January 24th. So we're going to be actually focusing exclusively on January the 24th today because there is a ton of great stories to cover. And there is a ton of stuff to talk about, and I think we should get ready. I think we should too. So let's cue up our theme music, and we'll be right back. It's a new year, and it's a brand new Wayback Music Machine. CD player? Check. GPS? Double check. Roll bar? They're on the way. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we're getting ready for another rock and roll road trip. Are you ready, my friend? I'm always ready. Well, in that case, buckle up because it's road trip time. So, Tony, before we start talking about all the incredible events of uh, January 24th throughout the history of rock and roll and music, quite frankly. Um, I think we just want to pay a little respect to Marvin Lee Aday, also known as Meatloaf, who passed away on uh, January the 20th at age 74. And uh, I know you and I both grew up with his music, right? Oh, we certainly did. And uh, I was shocked when I heard that in the news, to be honest. Yeah, it's just, 74 doesn't seem old. It's funny, when I was a kid, anyone over 40 seemed old. But Well, that's right. 74, there's still people, like look at Ringo Starr, who's still touring at, at 82 or whatever, you know? So, um, hey... Do you know how he got his name, Meatloaf? I mean, I've heard a bunch of different stories, but do you have the authoritative one? Or? Well, I have a, I have one that seems to be authoritative. Apparently, his dad, who was an alcoholic, came into the hospital and saw Meat, or Michael or Marvin Bourne, and he said, <laughs> he said that his son looked like um, nine pounds of ground chuck. <laughs> oh, boy. He asked, uh, he asked the hospital staff to put the name Meat on his crib. So they're kind of stuck. But, I mean, that's kind of a sad story, but kind of funny at the same time. But, uh, yeah. yeah, sad law. I mean, Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell 2. Um, do you remember that song, I Wouldn't Do That? I mean, yeah. that was, uh, huge, wasn't it? Well, that's right. And obviously, I mean, he must have had an interesting life to write oh. that kind of music, don't you think? Oh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah. And uh, you remember him in Rocky Horror Picture? He was an <laughs> actor. Rocky, yeah, he was Eddie, right? Eddie? Uh, yeah. Eddie, yeah. <laughs> And I just want to, you know, in Europe and England, if you look at the charts, this guy had every album he made except for one made the top 10 in the UK. Not over here. Uh, only two made the top 10 here, Battle of Hell 1 and Battle of Hell 2. But massive, massive in the UK, Ireland and Europe. So Yeah, very interesting artist. And I'm, well, you know, I always remember... Uh even back in uh, high school, the dances up, you could always count on Paradise by the Dashboard Light playing, right? You could always count on that. Every dance, every dance. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, that album launched Ellen Foley. It was a huge album and, and it's just sad. I don't know. It's just, even though I'm not the biggest fan, I've got 
three or four of his albums. I don't have everything he's ever done. And I like his music. I liked him. My daughters know him best as the um, the, the bus driver in Spice World. I mean, he was the... Oh, yeah, he, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, every generation has a different meatloaf story. But meatloaf, you're gone. But And I met him very briefly. Oh, did you? Uh, in New York City. He was with Billy Joel's producer, Phil Ramone. Oh, I think, yes, right. You were telling me that yeah. story. Yeah. He was very polite, very nice guy. So he was yeah. uh, sadly missed. So I'm going to turn it over to you now to start talking about 19... Well... January 24th. Yeah, you know, when we were researching the show, we, we just saw so many stories oh, from tons. January 24th. And we say this often on this show, right, that there are some weeks that are full of great rock and roll stories and other weeks that are just duds. And in this case, <laughs> we had enough for a, a full show just off of January 24th. So we decided as our 40th episode extravaganza here, we would just look at today or at January 24th in rock and roll history. And we're going to start by going back to 1958. And I think this is a really cool pre Beatles story. Why don't you introduce this one? Is this about Elvis or no quarterback? Well, it's, it's interesting that two things happened in 1958 on the same day, on the same day, too, which is really cool Two monumental. Okay. Well, let's talk about the quarrymen who were the quarrymen between 1956 and 1960. They changed their name in 1962, a band called the Beatles. But this is this date. They performed at the Cavern Club, uh, which is the the only performance that's documented of them playing the Cavern Club. Um, and years later, they came as the Beatles. They played the Cavern Club two hundred and ninety six times. But here, they played the Quarrymen, and they were opening. I love this name. They were opening for a band called the Mercy Mercysippi Jazz Band, um, and they were told not to play rock. They were told to play jazz. And trad, traditional music. And of course, John being John, played rock. Of course he did. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and they got notes sent up from the manager going, quit playing the bloody rock and roll. Um, do, you know where the, do you know where the quarrymen got their name? Well, I'm sure it had something, must have had something to do with, with Liverpool being a working class city, right? Like it, it had to be. Well, they went to a school called the Quarry Bank High School. Oh, right, right. And, and this is before my time. I don't know about your school. We never had a school song. Did no, you? we didn't either. Yeah, no. I guess that's maybe it's a British. Could American. be a British thing. Yeah. yeah, and there was a song, and the one of the lines referred to quarrymen, so they took the name. But yeah, so they they the Beatles in their early incarnation. So the quarrymen would have only been at this time, John, Paul, and George plus other people, right? So monumental day, the uh, the quarrymen playing the cavern club but then as they're playing the cavern club something else happened that same day well that's right across the pond in 1958 on january 24th and like we're saying what a huge day elvis presley entered not just hit number one but entered the chart at number one on the uk singles chart uh, with jailhouse rock so elvis from america of course but entering the uk singles chart with jailhouse rock and you've got to bet that the members of the quarrymen would have been listening to that on uh, radio luxembourg but jailhouse rock entered the chart at number one and it was his second uk number one and it ended up selling a ton a ton of copies i know uh, looking at the stats here at least four million copies in the u.s and amazing do you know what always impressed me? In the movie, Jailhouse Rock, he choreographed that. Yeah, whole, I was going to mention that. Yeah, that whole dance scene, that iconic dance scene, Elvis choreographed that. Can you? And, you know, people don't talk about the fact that he actually choreographed this really, I mean, it is iconic, and it's also really cool. 
You know what I noticed uh, the other, like a uh, last time I was watching Jailhouse Rock, and I thought this was really cool. And this is a musician nerd thing. But you know how they're dancing around with the trombones and the saxophones and stuff? Yeah. They're they're just cardboard cutouts, right? And and, yeah. and I saw it as he was, because I, you know, I thought, oh, that's cool. They're dancing with these instruments and stuff, uh, right? But they're just cardboard cutouts of instruments. So next time you're watching that, look for that. Yeah, I'm gonna look, as soon as we're done, I'm going to go on YouTube and look for that scene, because I want to see, can you really tell? Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> but it's still very, very cool. Awesome. 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 Yeah, so, I mean, can you believe that, that these two things happen? I wonder if they played Jailhouse Rock that night. Yeah, who knows? That would have been so cool. That would have been very cool. Very cool. But, you know, if there was no Elvis, there would be no Beatles, right? And 100%. I mean, I mean, Lennon said as much, so did Paul. I mean, they... And it's interesting that the Beatles, uh, on their records, never covered Elvis. They covered Buddy Holly and Smokey Robinson and Little Richard. They kind of left Elvis alone. And I, I, I'm convinced it's out of reverence. I, I think you're right. But I find that period... Well, you know this, I mean... Uh, because we know each other very well now. I find that period in the 50s, the early rock and roll era, is my favorite uh, moment in history. I, I find it so interesting how society changed to such a large extent, you know, from the advent of this music called rock and roll. is unbelievable. And I, I don't know about you, Tony, but every time we talk about this time era and I do a bit of research, I keep learning new things. Oh, me too. And and I think you're right. I think that it wasn't the, invita- the invitation, the invention of the teenager and... Uh, oh, that's right. You know, all those things. It's incredible when you... And I can't even imagine what that was like. No, well, you know, being a teenager... And having a little transistor radio that you could sneak upstairs and hide from your parents, listen to the radio at night. <laughs> yeah. No Perry Como, man. No, no, no. no. <laughs> oh, we'll be talking about him later. Yeah, though. We will. <laughs> well, Alan Freed was rocking the way. You know, it's just, it must have been an amazing time period. Uh, and I think about all those artists like Little Richard, and, and, and it's so part of our DNA now that oh, it's hard to imagine how it would have impacted at the time well and i love the reactions of people right how people were just freaking out parents groups and church groups and stuff like they you know oh my god your your girls are going to go run out and get pregnant like now because this music's on the radio <laughs> well that was the what do we call the uh what generation was that i can't i can't keep up i can't keep up yeah so two monumental things happening in one day that's what we're talking about is that in 19 uh, on this day january 24th there's so much going on well, that's right. And if we fast forward, I mean, we've got another Beatles one, 1962. And, and again, who knows if this hadn't happened, if the lads uh, would have continued, right? What happened on uh, January 24th, 1962? Well, that's when they signed their deal with Brian Epstein. And, and um, what I find interesting about this, there's two things that are interesting. One is that he never signed because he, he honestly believed that if he couldn't get them big, and within a year, they were big in the UK. He would just say the contract's null and void. So, but he also received twenty five percent. That's amazing. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it, he was making more than the any individual Beatle because the four that were splitting up seventy five percent. Yeah, that's true, right? And oh, I, and, and and I know I failed math so many times, but you're a teacher. But if you have 75% divided by four and one person getting a quarter, they're going to make more money. Yeah, he's making more money than the band is. <laughs> <laughs> I want that kid, man. <laughs> I'm going to stop being a musician and be a promoter. <laughs> My goodness. Did, do you remember, did you ever hear that joke? Um, they asked the Beatles, what made, like, why do you think you're so popular? And Lennon goes, we don't know. If we could figure it out, we'd quit <laughs> and sign four other bands. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Brian Epstein... Uh, you can't 
overstate his importance. No, I mean, it's like him and George Martin. It, it was like the perfect, it, it, the, the six of them had to be together. And yeah. it had to be Ringo. No offense to Pete Best, because I no, love Pete right. Best. But it, it, it was that magic six. Yep. And I, I think George Martin has much to, has did. George Martin has much to do with it as, as Epstein and the Beatles. I mean, they all came together, right? They oh, all, yeah. you know, and, and he just believed in them and he but, saw them at the cavern. So well, it's go. a perfect storm. It's unbelievable. The series of coincidences that brought those six people together is, is amazing. Yeah. And, and the end result, much like the early days of rock and roll that you talk about, the Beatles then went on to change the world a second time. No, they I did. mean, it, it, they just they just knocked it on its ear, and I mean, I'm always laughing when when people talk about how long their hair were in '64, and you look at them in 1964, it ain't long. No, it's it's pretty short, but they weren't buzz cuts, and there was no grease in them, and it was you know they weren't military haircuts; they were pretty well mop tops, right? Well, and you know, another thing I think that we overlook. Uh, a lot of the time is, and, and this is something I've learned from doing the show. And we look at the charts is, you know, rock and roll had this amazing, amazing explosion of popularity in the fifties, but then payola happened and rock and roll went through a phase where all of a sudden it was disappearing. The charts were all of a sudden not dominated by rock and roll songs. And then Beatles brought it back to the forefront. But don't you think that had a lot to do with Elvis going into the army? The minute Elvis went into the army, rock and roll kind of retreated. It did. I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis, of course, blowing up his career <laughs> yeah, had, had something to do with that as well. But uh, yeah. I think you're right. Elvis going in the army and then payola. Yeah. The two things. Oh, actually, the three. Jerry Lee Lewis really did muck everything up for everybody. Yeah. But, I mean, especially himself. But I think it was a combination of payola, Elvis going into the army. And I think... There was a moment there where it looked like rock was going to die. Yeah, well, because when we talk charts, right? You look at 61, 62, what was on the charts, and all of a sudden it was like grandpa's music on the charts. And not, Dean Martin, yeah. Sinatra, Doris Day, yeah. Yeah, and then, and then of course, along come the Beatles and, and gave it the shot in the arm that it needed. Well, it was also, and there was also the Johnnies, right? Like it was like, you know, or the Rickies and the, you know, those pinup boys. And there That's was, right. It was, or, or Sandra D and all that, so... It's an interesting time, but here they were, the Beatles signing with, with Epstein, and the, the world was going to be their oyster in, in 12 months. And now there's one more we're going to talk about um, in the 60s, but if we fast forward to 1969, this is another Beatles-related story. More, uh, more specifically, it's John Lennon and Yoko Ono. New York state prosecutors uh, told U.S. record dealers that they were going to be charged with distributing pornography if they were caught selling John and Yoko's uh, LP two versions. Of course, the, a famous cover, right? The front cover of the album showed them frontally nude, uh, while the back showed them from behind. It still managed to reach what number one twenty four on the U.S. charts, but it, it failed to chart in the U.K. But it's because record stores weren't allowed to sell this thing. Yeah, and and quite, quite honestly. I, it was one of those albums that no one listened to. They bought it for the cover. Oh, that's right. And, and have you ever heard it? I have. It's pretty different. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, they only ever. I mean, I, I I have the American, and I have a really rare Canadian version of it. Canadian pressing. I can't find a UK. I can't afford a UK pressing. Oh, really? No, I, I've never seen one for under five hundred bucks. Yeah, they only pressed five thousand versions in the yeah. UK. That's well, amazing. And and it came packaged with a a, a, a brown wrapper. Oh, so you couldn't even see the cover, right? So, 
And I, I, you know, I'm going to be one of those very people that say, in, in terms of avant-garde music and experimental, it was a landmark. It was a John Cage. It was all those kinds of, of, of people who are doing, you know, out there music. And it worked. But the cover was the thing. And, yeah, 30,000 copies were seized in New Jersey, so they could not be distributed, which eventually they, they let out to the public in the 80s. And but, they would be worth a pretty penny now, yeah. Yeah, good luck finding a copy. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a different album altogether. I wonder if I could play some of it on the uh, Spotify playlist. I might squeeze a little bit in. Yeah, that'd be great. And so I, we're going to do a chart here because we always talk about a chart uh, or two on this show. And so what did you pick for 1969, January 24th? Well, it's it's an interesting time. Uh, I, I also want to make a point that, and this is kind of interesting too, because Tony, this was a year when they started making singles into stereo. Oh, yeah. So leading up to this point, 69, every 45 you bought was mono. But all of a sudden they were making them stereo because of, you know, stereos becoming available. So top five singles, because I thought since we're talking about singles, it's going stereo. Number five, one of my all-time favorites, um, Sly and the Family Stone, Everyday People. Young Holt, Unlimited with Soulful Strut. When you hear it, you're going to go, oh, yeah, great song. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I had Diana Ross and the Supremes, I'm going to make you love me. And yes, folks, it was a song before a TV commercial. <laughs> I noticed I spelled the word wrong, Shondells. <laughs> really bad spelling. Tommy James and the Shondells with Crimson and Clover. Oh, yeah, that's a great song. You know who does a good version of that? Who? Joan Jett. Oh, I, yeah, I bet you she would. She does a good version of that. Really good. And Marvin Gaye was number one with the... I, I'm just going to say the word iconic. I heard it through the grapevine. The Beatles were at number one with the well, album was called officially called The Beatles, but known everywhere as the White Album. And George Harrison's first solo album um, was on the charts at number 149, soon to peak at 49, go to Wonderwall Music. So there you go. And you know what? Looking at those charts, you can see the influence of Motown, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, that was a great period. And I think another thing that people may not realize is it was Beatles, Motown, Beatles, Motown, and quite often the Supremes trading off number one all through that 1960s. And uh, I I watched a special on the uh, Motown Museum in Detroit. We're going. Yeah, we have to go for sure. And, um, you know, there's that note on the wall from the Beatles to the Supremes, right? Congratulations on uh, making number one. That's, it was fantastic. Yeah. You know what, Tony? The minute that the, the borders are open and it's an easy to get across and back, you and Cynthia, me and Andrea, we're doing a road trip. We're going to Detroit. You've got to go to this museum. It, it, it's well worth the drive. Oh. You, 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 and it's, you look at this house, you think, how long will this take me to go through it? 15 minutes? No, three hours. Oh, Hitsville, USA. I can't yeah. wait. I cannot yeah. wait. We're going. We're well, going. <laughs> you know what? I think it's time for us to take a break. And uh, I know a lot of podcasts, they do uh, commercials halfway through. We're going to do some commercials, but we're going to do it a little different because, to be honest, we don't make a whole lot of money on this show. <laughs> so we're going to give you uh, some pretty cool commercials. We'll be back in two minutes. Now a word from Oasis Filter Cigarettes. Smoke the big O. Oasis. New Oasis Filter Cigarettes with soothing menthol mist. Menthol mist, so mild, so light, makes every puff a smooth delight. Smokers who know, now smoke the big O. Smokers who know, now smoke the big O. 
Oasis, the filter's pure white. The box, flavor tight. Smoke as you know, now smoke the big O. Smoke as you know, now smoke the big O. Oh, flavor, oh, freshness, Oasis, smoke the big O. Oasis, the freshest new taste in smoking. Oasis. The difference is in the taste. Man is shabby. What a wine. Man is shabby. Are you the man from Manischewitz? Yes. Have you got the blackberries from my wine? Uh-huh. The European blackberries? Yep. The luscious European blackberries? Right. The big luscious European blackberries? Well, they're blackberries. My good fellow, Manischewitz blackberry wine is 100% pure. The luscious flavor is natural. That's why we can say the difference is in the taste. So I repeat... Have you got the big, luscious European blackberries? Oh, big, they're not. Next. Are you the man from Manischewitz? Yes. Have you got the blackberries? Uh-huh. The European blackberries? Yes, yes. Yeah. The luscious yeah. European yes. blackberries? Manischewitz right. tastes like grapes right off the vine. Imported sun-drenched berries make the berry wines divine. That's why this famous label is your natural flavor sign. Manischewitz, man, oh, Manischewitz. What a wine. Oh, there. Specially sweetened, the proud product of Manischewitz Wine Company, New York. I love commercials from the 50s and 60s. I know we've said it before on this show, but they're they're so funny. They're great. I feel like having a cigarette and a glass of wine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm guessing, though, that... uh, What's the name of that wine again? How do you pronounce it? Manischewitz. Manischewitz. I bet you it's not very good. I'm just guessing. Okay, I've had it, and it's not. Uh, (laughs) It's terrible wine. Terrible, terrible. Well, uh, you know what? In my opinion, I'm sure lots of people like it. It's just not my cup of tea. Okay, yeah. yeah. It just doesn't sound that great. That that commercial doesn't want to make me run out to the LCBO (laughs) and grab a bottle of Manischewitz. I wonder, is it still being made? I wonder, I wonder. You know, I wonder, is it the Jewish version of Baby Duck or what is it? Oh my gosh, I grew up with Baby Duck. Did you have that at Christmas time too? (laughs) (laughs) We thought we'd make fancy Christmas dinner with a Baby Duck. (laughs) <laughs> I remember that stuff? That was awful. But you know, we you know, as a kid, we we were allowed to have a glass. Did you get? Were you allowed to drink a little bit of baby duck at Christmas Day? Oh or? yeah, I was always allowed to drink a bit of wine from a very young age. Come Italian, right? So, <laughs> oh yeah. How young were you? Oh man, probably eight or nine. Oh, good yeah, for you. Yeah. yeah, you're still here. So well, that's right. It, it didn't do you any harm. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, baby duck. Now, now I'm really flipping back in time. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll settle down now. So let's go to uh, 1976 now. Another one, and this is someone that who we both admire as well. But uh, this is Bob Dylan, and starting this guy, his career is so interesting. Started a five week run at number one on the U.S. charts with his 17th studio album called Desire. You know, a, a great track on there, Hurricane. Uh, do you remember the whole Reuben Hurricane Carter controversy? Mm-hmm. It was huge. It was it was in the news, and uh, there was concerts to raise money so he could appeal. Yeah, yeah. He was the middleweight uh, boxer who was accused of triple murder, and uh, a lot of people felt like he was innocent. Yeah, and uh, Dylan but, was one of them. Yeah, Dylan was one of them, and and but uh, what what a another big achievement for him. Well, I think people forget that in in the seventies, Dylan had three albums back to back go number one. He had Blood on the Tracks, which actually four Blood on the Tracks. Um, he had uh, before the, not before the flood, um, uh, Planet Waves, um, Desire, and then he had an album called Street Legal. And 
they're not talked about today, Tony. No. Um, but De- Desire also had a, a an eleven minute song called Joey, which was about the gangster Joey Gallo, and people thought that Dylan wasn't glamorizing it. It was just a song, like a about a gangster. Yeah, that's all. He wasn't saying the guy was great. It was just a. It's a long song. It's a cool song, though. Well, you know, it reminds me of uh, Billy Joel's song about Billy the Kid there, too, right? That thing clocks in at quite long. I'm not sure of the timing of it, but again, Do you know what? I just listened to that the other day. That's yeah, a great song. It is a fantastic song. Yeah, yeah. really good song. Man. And, you know, uh, Billy will be the first to admit that it's entirely not accurate yeah. historically. <laughs> But he just wanted to write a song about Billy the Kid, and I imagine that's all Bob Dylan wanted to do, right? Yeah, and, and, and they're stories. They're just stories. Yeah. And, and, and they're, not his, they're not history teachers. They're not trying to... But uh, yeah, this Desire is a great... It's a classic album. And, and folks, we're just going through... Uh, while I'm here, I'm going through Tony's record collection, and I'm really surprised by what I'm finding. Oh, very cool. I'm I'm so, yeah, we're going to talk about a group coming up, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about this a bit later, but yeah. Yeah, it's fun to look through records, isn't it? It's my fa- You know, it's the best thing to do, yeah. in my opinion. It tells a story. Oh, absolutely. You know, so Tony actually has an album that I may steal. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome to borrow it any time, my yeah, friend. thanks. I'm just kidding around. I'm totally kidding, folks. But it's a, it was a pretty cool find, you know, with uh, that Paul McCartney track on there. Yeah, yeah so Tony, Tony has an album by Chris Barber. And, and there's a track on the album called Cat Call, which was written by McCartney. McCartney plays on it, and McCartney never recorded a version on his own album. So that's very cool, Tony. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Very cool, very yeah. cool. So you had uh, picked some UK album charts for this story. So what do, what do you got? This is the weirdest top five. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, this is the <laughs> so this is the UK album chart for this this day in, in 1976. And at, at number five was Mike Oldfield with Oma, Do- Oma Juan. But then number four, okay, I'm sorry, I'm giggling. <laughs> Perry Como, 40 Greatest Hits. Well, there must have been a lot of Italians buying albums that uh, week. <laughs> Just... with, with cardigans. <laughs> <laughs> number three is Roy Orbison, the best of Roy Orbison. I, I love Roy, but yeah. 76. And then number two, The Drifters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know what was happening in England in the, in 1976. But is it one of those things? You know how they say things go in 20 year cycles, and people were looking back and wistfully. Maybe. I don't know. I don't. Maybe they were on sale at the local uh, Tesco. I don't know. It's uh, it's bizarre. But number one, and then you get so you get Mike Oldfield number five, and number one is an album you love. And yeah. I believe you have on vinyl. Yeah. Queen, A Night at the Opera. Yeah, what an amazing chart. But you know, we were saying like. Perry Como and Queen on the same chart in the top five. Go figure. I love it. I love England for that. I mean, I just, I don't know where Perry Como, yeah, maybe there's, there's maybe a lot of Italians. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Did you, you grew up listening to Perry Como? Oh my gosh. My grandfather had Perry Como on all the time. (laughs) So I I grew up Perry Como, Lawrence Welk. My God, you know, I don't know how many hours of Lawrence Welk I ended up watching. Did you watch the show as a kid? Uh, Yeah, because my grandfather always had it on, right? Yeah, um, that was a, my grandmother used to babysit us. Okay. And she would have it on when my mom and dad would go and they'd be like, please stop. So did you know, now we're meandering here a little bit, yeah, but, a little bit. but the uh, the clarinet player after Pete Fountain on uh, yeah. the Lawrence Welk show, because you remember Pete Fountain left the Lawrence Welk show over disagreements on uh, how he wanted his role to be. Okay. You know, and, and he wanted to... Uh, Lawrence always wanted to play it very, very safe because that was his thing, right? And um, 
The guy who came in after him was a guy named Henry Cuesta on clarinet. But guess where Henry Cuesta's from? Ottawa? He's from Toronto, your neck huh? of the woods. He's from Mississauga, Ontario. Really? A guy named Henry Cuesta on clarinet. And Cuesta had it in his contract. He had to have a solo every show. So he was smart. See, P. Fountain didn't have that negotiated. No. But uh, yeah. he, he Fountain went on to have a substantial career. Oh, unbelievable career. Right? Yeah. I mean, is that, do you think that's why you play clarinet because of watching Lawrence Welk? Could be. Must have been influenced by maybe. But uh, yeah, Henry Cuesta had it in his contract that he was, uh, I had, had no to have idea. a solo every single show. So that's pretty amazing. And he's from Mississauga. So. Wow. You know, we uh, here in uh, the GTA. <laughs> so that, well, that's, uh, see, a small world. Now, um, what's up next? Because, uh, like I said, so many things happened that day. Well, oh, 1980. Is, yeah. yeah, this is cool. This is really cool. There, there was a billboard that was erected on Sunset Strip, which is in West Hollywood. I've been there. Uh, and it was to promote the Pink Floyd's, not Pink Floyd, they, were, they dropped the word the after their second album, to promote Pink Floyd's new album, The Wall. And a blank wall was pasted up, and each day a brick was removed to reveal the inside spread and title of the album. Now, how cool is that? that, is, that that's a great PR strategy. That is the coolest thing I've ever... I wish I could have seen that. Okay, I got to say something, folks. So Tony's showing me his records, and he's got three of the most obscure Pink Floyd. He doesn't have The Wall or Dark Side. No, or I don't Dark, have... <laughs> you, you have Adam Hart Mother. Oh, my gosh. I, this is why we're best friends. Kindred Spirits. I love that album. Yeah, it's a great album. It's fantastic. And then you have a nice pair, which is their first two albums repackaged, which... Um, Wow. Wow. That is so cool. That's so fun looking through record collections. Wow. They're, and they're, yeah. and they're, those, are, those are rare because you have the um, uh, very rare reissues from the 80s. There wasn't a lot pressed because by 1980s, people weren't buying Adam, our mother. No. <laughs> so you got some rare vinyl there, my friend. Oh, I'm going to hold on to it then. That's You perfect. should. You yeah. should. And then now from 1980, we're going to jump way ahead to 2016. And... You know what we did? Uh, we were chatting with our friend Bernard Fraser today, and Bernard yep. is a David Bowie diehard fan, so we thought we'd sneak in a David Bowie story from the 24th of January, and this is 2016. And wow. an album of his that, of course, went number one on both the UK and the US album charts. It was uh, his 25th and final studio album called Black Star, and of course, that was also when Bowie passed away at the age of 69. And we talked about that uh, last week or the week before. A couple of weeks ago, yeah. But uh, remember, we were talking about this and I like I couldn't believe it was his only album to top the Billboard 200 in the US. I, I had no idea. Yeah, well, because you, because you kind of assumed Let's Dance would make number one or yeah. Young Americans or even Space Oddity or Ziggy. You know that Ziggy, it took Ziggy 12 years to go gold in America? Unbelievable. It never made the top 100. Ziggy Stardust in America never made the top 100. And yet, you know, he's one of those artists that was always, it seemed like always at the forefront of what people were talking about. Like yeah. everybody knew who Bowie was, right? Yeah. I mean, but interesting, what's what's really super interesting, Tony, is that in 19, or in 2001, he recorded an album called Toy, which never got released for many reasons. It just got released a couple of weeks ago. Oh. And as, as we're talking about Blackstar, it's number five in England. Oh, wow. The new album, Toy. So Have you, you listened go. to the album? Toy or yeah. Blackstar? No, Toy. Uh, I've heard half of it. Okay. I haven't heard it at all. So. It's it's odd. 
I will say that. And the cover is absolutely frightening. Oh, really? Have you seen the cover? No, no, I haven't seen anything or heard uh, anything about I'll it. I'll show you the cover later. It's <laughs> it was it's just a weird photo of a of a that looks like a toddler or a baby with David Bowie's face superimposed on oh, it. Oh, really? It's just weird, you know. But but that album is in the top five right now. So there you go. Like um, now, why didn't he release it? Is there a story behind that? Was it just too too experimental, even for his taste? Do you think? Or? The the record label didn't want to release it. Oh, it's the label's decision. He, the label he was on at the time went bankrupt. Okay. And they it just got and by the time he had signed to a new label, you know, I guess well, you know, you're you're an artist. You kind of you maybe kind of moved on from that project now and you weren't interested in it anymore. So it's 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 interesting. It's just it's just when it's finally come out. So, you know. It's interesting, Al, but the cover is pretty weird. So Google it, folks. Toy. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. Now, we uh, were also looking through the birthdays on this day, and we had to talk about this guy. January 24th, 1941, Neil Diamond and was born. And again, Neil Diamond, I, I like Neil Diamond, I'll be the first to admit. You know, a lot of people think he's corny or cheesy or whatever. I, I love Neil Diamond. Uh, you're not going to get an argument out of me. I actually, people are sometimes surprised that I like Neil Diamond, and I don't know why they're surprised. The man wrote... Uh, incredible, incredible melodies. Um, you know, he, he, great, I think sometimes great lyrics, but he also was part of the Brill Building. Yeah. And uh, go ahead, Tony, look, look at some of the hits he wrote. Well, I mean, obviously you've got, everybody knows Sweet Caroline, but Cracklin' Rosie, right? That went to number one, right? Yep. In the US and, and UK went to number three. I'm a believer, the number one song for the monkeys. Mm -hmm. But he was covered by Elvis Presley, Lulu, Deep Purple, all covering his songs. Shrek. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he became the oldest artist to have a US number one in 2008 with Home Before Dark. And that was held by Bob Dylan. Yeah. Who did uh, Modern Times in 2006. But then uh, Neil Diamond, a couple of years later, broke that record. So very cool. Good album, too. I don't know if you remember it or not. It has a song called uh, Pretty Amazing Grace. It's a great album, Pretty Amazing Grace. And you know, like the legacy of, well, Sweet Caroline, right? It's one of those songs. I remember standing in line, I think it was a grocery store, a couple of years ago, right? And Sweet Caroline is being piped through the speaker. And you know what just about everybody in the grocery store did. Ba, is, ba, that's right. Ba. Like the, the speaker goes, sweet Caroline. And the whole grocery store, ba, ba, ba. Like it's, <laughs> it's one of those bonding experiences, you know. <laughs> but have you ever seen, have you ever seen, um, you know, baseball game at Fenway? Because they play that for the seventh inning stretch. Oh, do they? Yeah. And he actually sang it about five years ago at an all-star game that was being played at Fenway. And they, you know, he comes out, he does Sweet Caroline for the seventh inning stretch. It was great. It was great. I mean, the guy was great. But uh, yeah, I mean, and just his history with the Brill Building, writing for other people, Cherry Cherry, um, so many songs. I Am I Said, which is one of my all-time oh. favorite songs. I love that song. Yeah. And, oh, fantastic artist. And now I'm looking at what you've got for a chart here. So what, what do you have? These, uh, these are the top five Neil Diamond albums sales-wise, which oh, I was surprised. Okay, yeah, let's take a look. I'm, I'm kind got? of surprised. Number five is Serenade, uh, which was 78. Um, Longfellow Serenade was on the album. Number four is Taproot Manuscript, which had I Am, I Said. 
Number three is, I, I have to say, is my favorite Neil Diamond album called Beautiful Noise, produced by Robbie Robertson of the band. Oh, wow. Yeah. Number two is Moods, which I believe had Sweet Caroline. And number one is Stones. And now, you may not even know these albums because they're, they, they, you know, they're, over time, Neil Diamond has become what I call a greatest hits artist. That's so right. People have greatest hits packages. You know, but I have all of his albums because I grew up with a mother who was madly in love with him. So every Sunday morning, when she would bake, uh, we would hear Neil Diamond and Waylon Jennings. And I think she was happy when they recorded a song together. <laughs> <laughs> They did in 1993 called Tennessee Moon. Well, happy birthday, Neil Diamond. And, you know, I know Neil's probably not listening to this, but... You never know. So what is that? 1941 makes some A's... I failed math, Tony. 72? Yeah, he'd be 72, right? 72 or 82. Oh, 82. 82. 82. Oh my gosh, that's hard to believe. Now I just feel so old. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel too old. But yeah, happy birthday, Neil. And you know what? Can you believe it? We're at the end of the show here, but what I always love when we can record in person, man. It's, uh, it's so great. And I think I think sooner than... We're not going to make any promises, folks, but sooner, sooner than later, I think we'll be doing this more often in person. I think it's better, too. I enjoy it. Oh, me too. And you know what? Sooner rather than later, it's going to be happening. So oh, I know it is. I know it let's is. Let's not talk about that yet, but... Uh, <laughs> Just a major folks. life change is happening for Tony and I coming yep. up in the in the summer. That's right. So look for it. But in the meantime, thanks for very much for listening to us today. And thanks for sticking with us all the way through to episode number 40. I know you were saying earlier today that uh, we had talked, you know, last year at this time about, hey, you know what? We better not cover all these stories because we'll have nothing for this time next year. Here we are. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm so thrilled. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been such a great, I can't, 40 just seems like, wow, we're really doing this. And it's good. And I, I got to thank people for sharing the show and, and the comments we get on Facebook. They're great. They're great. Oh, absolutely. So folks, as I like to say, thanks for inviting us into your headphones and have a great week. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to our road trip. The music was by Rick Denis. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, be sure to click the follow or subscribe button in your favorite podcast player. That way you'll be the first to know whenever we release a new episode. How else can people help, Aaron? They can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our website. And if you think we're worth the five stars, please leave us a review. Thanks for hitting the road with us today, and we'll see you again soon. It's not just business, it's personal. And Signature Theater's new musical, No Place to Go. When dedicated employee George discovers his company is relocating to Mars, he must decide whether to go and uproot his family's life or embark on an unknown venture. Featuring DC star Bobby Smith, No Place to Go is an irreverent and humorous musical with an enterprising twist. Now playing at Signature Theater through October 16th. Get your tickets at sigtheater.org.